0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
2: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe,
0: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How did clothing, or just simple rolls of fabric, give power to people who were otherwise powerless in 19th century America? Well, today we've got a fascinating chat for you where Professor Laura F. Edwards explains to Ellen Evans how in the post-revolutionary US, fashion, money and authority were all intricately linked.
3: We're talking today about your new book, Only the Clothes on Her Back, Clothing and the Hidden History of Power in the 19th Century United States. It explores the legal history of textiles in the new United States of America in the wake of the American Revolution and prior to the Civil War of the 1860s. Now, I guess that might seem like quite a, quite a big subject for our listeners. So, <laughs> so I wonder if we can start by giving a sense for our listeners of what textiles meant to people in this period, that their, their status, their value, what could they mean to a person?
4: So, it's it's a great question. And this really started with one single observation that I had noticed in research for another book, which is that there is this presumption that the clothing that somebody has on belongs to that person. And I saw this happening sort of across all kinds of different statuses of people. So enslaved people, for instance, it was presumed that the clothing that they had on was theirs, that it belonged to them. They didn't have property rights to it, but it still belonged to them. And this was also the case with married women, you know, who are under coverture, which is a series of legal principles that basically subsumes them under the legal identity of their husbands and also denies, not only denies them property rights. They can't own property in their own names by right, but it also gives their husbands claims to whatever they brought into the marriage and whatever they earn. But married women could also make claims to clothing, and this is a really strong custom that establishes basically legal authority, Um, and this is recognized in courts. So, it was something that was not only presumed, you know, out there in culture, but courts recognize this as well. So, I found this completely fascinating because all well, these people without property rights were essentially using this principle that clothing could belong to them to make legal claims to clothing. But then on top of that, they basically said, well, you know, and it's not just clothing, it's lengths of cloth that could be made into clothing, and it's accessories that go along with clothing, and it's the cloth and other textiles that I made, and it's anything that has anything to do with textiles that pass through my hands. So, they extend all of this out to make claims to all kinds of textiles and accessories, and this is a period when they're really expensive still. And so, this is meaningful property, really valuable property, made all the more valuable because these people have legal claims to them, so this was kind of stunning to me because I always imagine these people as without property at all and outside, you know, the economy. And that just wasn't the case.
3: Right. So you've already mentioned the notion that if people were wearing clothes that made them their own. What else was it about textiles that allowed this subversion of the property rights norms of the time?
4: Right. You know, it's this it's this contradiction and deep irony with clothing in particular. So, it's presumed to express individual character. So, your clothes are such a personal aspect of you and your identity in this period that people would identify other people in terms of their clothing rather than their physical characteristics. So, they go to the clothing first. You know, they had a certain kind of hat, they had a blue coat, it was old, it was ragged, or it was new and well-made. They notice all of those details about clothing and that, becomes part of your identity. But it's because of that close connection, because it is so associated with your identity, that people then without property rights can make claims to those materials. And then it's because they can make those claims that then they can, you know, sell and trade, that they can alienate that property, essentially. So it's that close personal connection that then provides that legal connection, and that legal connection then allows them to start trading in these goods. Um, so it's kind of, you know, a conundrum there. It's a dilemma. It's, it's a contradiction, but it's a contradiction that allows people to actually turn these things into a commodity, a form of trade. And here they're turning clothes into currency oftentimes. They're saving them as capital, and they're also using them as the basis of um, leveraging them for loans and other ways of establishing credit. So this very personal property then becomes something that is very impersonal in terms of currency and capital and the basis of credit too.
3: And I want to pick up on this, this issue of it as currency, first of all. There's an image that distilled so much for me, which was this idea that you write, um, in fact, a handkerchief, handkerchief was better than a dollar bill. Um, can you talk to us a bit more about that idea?
4: You know, this, I was, when you say that, I immediately think of Dickens and I think of, um, you know, the ways that handkerchiefs are being stolen. And we think, oh my gosh, it, to steal a handkerchief, that's kind of pathetic, right? Why would you steal a handkerchief? But people are stealing handkerchiefs because they're basically like a dollar bill. And Clothing is, you know, very, it's used as currency and actually was used as currency in the global textile market for centuries. Um, And so that practice then continues in the United States in, you know, this period in the early 19th century. And, It works really well, textiles as currency, because people know textiles. Um, They're widely available at this point. People have real familiarity with them. So they can assess value pretty, you know, accurately. And textiles come in all kinds of different forms. So it also works really, a handkerchief is, you know, less than you know a big bolt of cloth and there's all kinds of things in between like shirts and shifts and you know there's different gradations of handkerchiefs so you know a used cotton one is worth less than a nice silk one and with all of these clothing all these forms of clothing two people discount according to the quality and the use right so uh Good cotton handkerchief may be worth about a $1 dollar in 1830. You know, if it's used, you discount that. If it's a nicer, bigger one, you add on. Um, so you can use, you know, textiles. They, they, they work really well as a form of trade that way. But they also tend to hold their value better than some other forms of currency at this point. This is particularly true in the United States where the whole monetary system is not particularly well regulated and so banknotes are issued by local banks state banks the united states notes also circulate as you know personal notes as notes of credit that individuals would issue and you never know the value of those notes so it says a dollar on it but you know Maybe it's not worth a dollar. And in fact, you know, in some cities and um, that 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 employers would contract with people like on a weekly basis, and they offered to pay in local currency at the beginning of the week. But by the end of the week, that currency could be actually worthless. And a dollar that's issued in Massachusetts might not, actually spend in South Carolina. People wouldn't accept it because they don't know the value of it. And then if you were without property rights, if you're a married woman, if you're an enslaved person, if you have banknotes, it's suspect because the presumption is that you can't own property. So especially with enslaved people, the presumption is you might have stolen that. And at the very least, you can't trade. People ought not to take that. And there's this proliferation of stories in the early 19th century too with women where they're always, um, according to these stories and this narrative, they're always passing counterfeit notes. And so it isn't, in fact, that women pass counterfeit notes all the time, although there are some notorious counterfeiters who use women and women counterfeiters who are passing those notes. But what those stories are about is the, the sense of illegitimacy that comes with women and notes, that women should not be you know, a central part of trade when they have banknotes. It's a problem. But we get back to textiles, right? So when you have textiles, though, nobody bats an eye. If an enslaved person is walking down the street with a shirt, then it's totally okay. If they're walking down the street with a $100 bill banknote, then it's a problem. And the same thing with women. Trading stacks of cloth for women, it's presumed that that's theirs. But if they have a banknote, it might be currency. It might be counterfeit. might be dodgy. So textiles have great... they, they they fill a great need in the economy um, for people on the margins who actually need to trade and need a form of currency to trade in and textiles really provide that for them
3: right and as well as that sort of um more hard or s- static and wary using those words that economic value there's always there's also in your book and um, throughout your book the 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 emotional value and the investedness of of, in the clothing and what can you say about that sense of connection that these textiles have to those who created them who looked after them and who wore them
4: You know, we always think of value, or not always, but we tend to think of value in terms of, like you say, strictly economic terms. So, you know, the price that you fetch down at the store, and that's it, right? It's market value. And textiles have this value that goes beyond that for people on the margins, all those people without property rights or poor people who have, you know, fewer items of property, who have weaker claims to property as well. So clothing at this point, because it is so personal, um, it can actually like change your life in some instances. And I think the most dramatic illustration of that is enslaved people who are escaping slavery. And if they dress like free people, they are more likely to pass as free people. And so there are these very high profile cases of escaped slaves who then, you know, pass as free people because they dress as free people. So they save up to purchase the clothing that will then enable them to pass into a new status in life. Um, And it's the same thing with poor people too, poor women who pour money into their clothing and they're ridiculed often in popular narratives for doing this, but dressing better gives them better jobs. It gives them better prospects in life. It materially changes their actual conditions, their status. And so the clothing has incredible power that way. And then sort of beyond that, since it does express who you are, people take great pride in this ability to self-fashion, right? So the value of that also is not strictly in terms of changing status, but it's an outlet for individual expression that is not available to people on the margins. And in this I find in other contexts, right? That it's not available to people on the margins generally. They don't have a lot of options about self-expression and making meaning in their lives. And Clothing provides them a way to do this, to define who they are, to express themselves, um, to make statements about what matters in their life. And, and the thing that I find really compelling in this is actually the care that people give to, um, maintaining their clothing. So if you think about like poor people living in a city they don't have access to water they don't have very many clothes but they go to great lengths to make sure that their clothes are clean and that they're well tended and they do that not because they're trying to please some middle class sensibility but because it really matters to them to present themselves well and poor people will spend enormous amounts of money on you know one piece of beautiful clothing or an accessory that they wear that then makes them feel like there's beauty in their life. And to me, this really matters. I mean, we always think of poor people people on the margins living dreary, drab lives. And clothing really brings color. Textiles bring color. And you start seeing that this beauty mattered too, um, and that they're investing in these things not just because of the economic value, but because of the cultural value, and because it had meaning beyond the economics. It was about creating a fuller life. And this really, I think, makes these people more three-dimensional to me. I, I like knowing that about People in the past.
3: Yes, I agree, and I think particularly in this era, sort of so-called fast fashion that we live in at the moment, there is something really beautiful about that care and attention that tells us about these individuals. Um, If we can return uh, back to the economic value at the moment, though, um, the the idea that a coat could be worth a man's wages. What sort of fashions are around at the time, if we can broadly talk about the era that you're writing about? I know you um, wrote over 15 states. Was it fairly homogenous in terms of the fashions that you were seeing at this time?
4: Well, no. In fact, people have really definite ideas about what they like, and that varies from place to place. And I found this really stunning because now we think of fashion as something that's dictated from above, and it's fairly, you know, it's fairly universal, right? You find people in the United States in New York or Charleston or Richmond or Los Angeles and Chicago—they're all wearing kind of the same thing that's distributed through the same, you know, venues. And in this period, it's different from place to place. So, like merchants in New York would have different kinds of cloth and fabrics and colors. The merchants in Philadelphia and New York and Philadelphia are really close. And so some merchants of Philadelphia and New York would have established partnerships where they trade things back and forth. So merchants would find that whatever fabrics they had, that purple fabric with the yellow flowers was not selling in Philadelphia, but it would sell in New York. Um, And so the merchants are constantly trying to figure out what is going to sell in particular locations. And you have to think about the market here in two kind of dimensions. So we have the market that they're talking about, merchants are talking about when they're buying sort of large lots of cloth and shipping them around, right? So they're thinking about the market then, where the kinds of fabrics are more indistinguishable, um, and they're buying in those large lots. But once those fabrics hit a particular place, they're talking about a local market. And that local market is made up of all those people generally without property rights, which, again, a big contradiction here. Merchants, their primary, in some most instances, consumers are actually people who technically can't buy and sell. The product the textiles right so merchants have a vested interest one in sort of maintaining this idea that in fact textiles are a different kind of property that even people without property rights can purchase and then own um, but they're also very dependent on those people who have definite opinions about what they want to wear. So, we kind of imagine merchants are dictating all of this to people, and it's not the case. In fact, it's the other way around. It's all those people who are dictating to merchants what, in fact, they're going to buy. Um, and one of my favorite stories here in relation to this is... Um, an agent who worked for a firm in New Orleans who was connected to New York. And this is during the Mexican-American War, and the United States Army is invading Mexico, and he attaches himself to the United States Army so he can figure out the market, as he calls it, the markets is actually what he's talking about, in Mexico. And he's in Veracruz, and he spends the entire time checking out what people are wearing. So he's looking around and going to various, you know, places with the U.S. Army, which gives him access access. And then he's trying to figure out what women are wearing. And at one point, he's saying, well, I got really close. So, I could tell, you know, it was a certain kind of cloth, but I couldn't get close enough to feel it. So, I don't know exactly where it was made. But I think, you know, I have a better sense of how we might, you know, what kinds of goods might sell in this market. So, yes, the guy that is attaching himself to the U.S. Army and then trailing along, you know, like trying to fill women's dresses so that he can figure out what kind of cloth to sell, I think kind of captures the merchant's dilemma here, right?
3: Right. And and I think it's so interesting that that's just one of the many ways that women can gain that power from, from this from this phenomenon. But I think um, there are more direct ways of women uh, leveraging this power in your book. I wanted to ask particularly about the Cooley women.
4: Yes. So the Cooley women, they live in Western Virginia. And this is the area that's right close to the Tennessee and North Carolina border. And it's pretty backwoods at this point. Um, And they're living in the 1840s there. And So the Cooley women are in this family, um, lots of brothers and sisters. The father is fairly elderly at this point, the husband, father, um, and he's a watchmaker. And you can imagine that, in fact, there are not all that many watches to fix in the middle of nowhere in Virginia. So he doesn't have a big income stream coming in there. And the farm is also fairly modest. And, you know, they live outside the area where you can get produce to market. So, you know, again, the income stream is not great. So the Cooley women have a textile manufacturing and by manufacturing in this period you're not talking like a factory it's it's a manufacturing enterprise usually done within households often involving women but producing on a large scale a fairly large scale um, so it's the mother and then it's also um, her daughters and the daughters cycle in and out so when they get married you know they leave the family business but she has um, three daughters at home during the period that i'm talking about who are all involved in textile manufacturing and so what they do is they make woolen cloth they weave they also sew um and one of the things that they sew are the men's militia um uniforms and so there isn't a standard uniform for militia musters and men will have, they come to militia musters in like greens and blues, and they try to make the uniform as fancy as possible with as much braid and as much decoration. So they make, and they want to look, you know, really sharp for the other guys there as they're marching around during militia musters. So they make those uniforms. um, And then they trade all of what they make um, also the cloth and whatnot with local merchants and they trade in their own names, even though, you know, the mother who is married would technically not have property rights. She has control over this entire manufacturing, all of the produce that they're making. Now, what is so interesting here is that, you know, the women are making textiles. They go to market in the merchants. They, they sell their goods. They buy more textiles. And you think, why would they do this? And they're doing this because if they buy more textiles, they can keep control over that particular kind of property. So they're not buying consumer goods. They're actually investing in more textiles textiles. And what the mother then does is give a trousseau of textiles to her daughters when they marry. And this is fairly common. Actually, you know, when I think about it, this is kind of what happened with my mother and my grandmother as well. Um, you know, my grandmother's trunk was full of textiles. She had a trunk. It was textiles. It was the kinds of linens that you use for you know, bed linens, table linens, napkins, but also, you know, special dresses and things. So this is the property that the mother gave to the daughters. This would be property that the daughters could keep. And one of the daughters became very important to her. She moved to Missouri. Her husband was not particularly Particularly competent in business. His farm failed. They lost all the money. The creditors came for her husband's property, but they didn't take the textiles because that belonged to the daughter, the cooley daughter. And those were hers. And she also had the skills in making textiles. So she was able to keep the family afloat with the savings, which is the form of textiles in her trunk, and also her skills. So
5: Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com historyextra history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra.
2: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe,
4: In fact, what you see is women then leveraging, saving the value of their labor and the property that they could keep, passing it along to their daughters. And we've not seen this as economic value. We've kind of seen this as, oh, they're just passing on silly little consumer goods. But that's not what's going on here. This is actually a way that women were able to store value, keep it in their own name. And then oftentimes they had to use it, right, to maintain their families because their husbands weren't always able to do that.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: Women who sewed either for themselves or for, you know, to sell in the market, um, women who made cloth. This is making something of value with your own hands.
3: And can you talk a little more about the legal framework, how we see that playing out in this period? How do people go about claiming? Um, this property that that is theirs um, in this period
4: right um, this is a conundrum for the magistrates all the court officials because women, married women, enslaved people, poor people actually pretty much everybody is very insistent that their textiles are theirs. but when they're faced with like a married woman with no property rights, um, they don't know what to do. So imagine the situation. this is an actual court case. Um, you have a woman who marches in with a sheet and says, "This is my sheet." Um, but she stole it and I just got it back from her and you need to like, prosecute her. And the magistrate, this woman's yelling at him, right? And it, he knows that it's her sheet, but he can't actually mount a case in, civil, in a civil action, which is the form of action that will protect property rights because she has no property rights. So he can't do that. So what he does is he shifts this over into the area of public law, which includes criminal law, and he turns it into a theft. Okay, so the sheet that this woman says the other woman stole, okay, this woman with the sheet, her name is Sarah. Sarah says this other woman stole it, but in fact, it was a loan. And what is happening is she loaned the sheet to this woman. She was expecting the value of it back. She didn't get the value back. And so she now wants to prosecute this case. It's essentially a debt case, but again, this can't go through as a debt case because that requires property rights. So they shift it over as a theft case. And you can do this because, and then return the property to the owner because a theft case involves the public order. So you're restoring property where it belongs, regardless of property rights. So, you can give property back to the person who is claiming it without recognizing property rights. So, you can give Sarah back her sheet. She doesn't have property rights, but the sheet belongs with her, and that's in the interest of the public order. And textiles fit really well within frames of law that emphasize the public order, because it's customary practice. They've been recognized for centuries. So you're talking about, you know, practices that are part of the public order. It's exactly the kind of thing that these cases recognize. And it allows actually the recognition then of property ownership outside the framework of property rights. So this is what they do. And I found this really fascinating because it took me a long time to figure out That this was going on. And other historians have looked at all this and seen all these cases involving the theft of textiles. And the theft of textiles actually is like the majority of theft cases in this period. And this is actually the same in England as well. and people go through and say, "Well, this is because you know these people are so desperately poor, and so all they're, they're stealing handkerchiefs and they're stealing shirts, and this is you know this is just evidence of the dire economic situation of the time, and it is you know indication of poverty and the structural inequalities at that time, but it's also efforts of ordinary people." without property rights or the weak weak claims to property rights to enforce the rules governing the exchange of textiles. So this is not just about poverty, it's also about the creative ways that people are using the law and also their insistence that these rules governing textiles be enforced.
3: Yes, that's so fascinating how people would be know to to leverage and see these social norms and be able to use them in that way. Um, but I wanted to ask, you've already mentioned um that textiles also um gave this power to enslaved people. I wonder if we could talk about how they might have also um taken advantage, I suppose, of these social norms. Was it were they able to use it in the same way?
4: They try to use them. So they're available to use, right? But they're not always successful. And so, you know, the, the legal qualities that are attaching to textiles and that attach textiles to the people who wear them or that passes through their hands, those are out there and available. But not every and people can try to use them. Um, but not all people can use them as successfully as others, right? And so enslaved people do try to take advantage of these. Uh, legal principles and many of them are able to do so, but it is more difficult for them to do so. Um, And the barriers of course, to doing it are much greater. So I'll give you an example. Um, And I use this in the book. There's an enslaved woman who lives in South Carolina. Her name is Polly. And she actually, you know, has a small business making spinning thread and then in yarn and then selling it. And she's made several hanks of thread. She's spun it, she's dyed it, she's left it out in the court in her, you know, yard to dry, um, after dying it. And it gets stolen, right? So she then, you know, she's insistent that this comes back to her, this property comes back to her. And so she, you know, is claiming theft, but how do you claim theft if you're enslaved and you yourself are property and technically can't own property? So the magistrate hears about this and the local magistrate is the court official who would be trying this case. Um, and what ends up happening is the case is, is filed in her master's name, right? So this requires the um, assistance or at least the assent of the master. Um, and so the, the case is in the case file is that the property was stolen from her master. And so all of that has to be filled out in the way that, you know, recognizes the property is belonging to the master because she cannot file this case. But then when you open up the court records, the first thing that Polly said is the thread belonged to her. And then they proceed with that presumption there. So you have to have kind of the assent of the master, but then, After that, if you go forward with the ascent of the Master, then enslaved people can make claims to this property. And the way she frames it is also really important, right? She says, the thread belonged to her. She doesn't say, I own the thread. She is actually invoking those legal principles that are attached to textiles, that the thread attached to her. And then enslaved people who had seen her with the thread, who's seen her producing the thread, um, who saw the thread being taken, they all line up to testify to establish that connection. And it's that connection then that the courts recognize. But there still has to be some assent of masters and white people in authority to recognize those principles. What I find fascinating is that they do, right? So it would seem like masters or white court officials would have every reason not to recognize those principles. But we get back to the nature of those principles in the public order. They're seen as so central to the public order that... You know, even white masters and white court officials are willing to recognize them in relationship to enslaved people. It suggests how central those principles are in sort of the larger legal order and the way people are understanding how, you know, how law works and what matters.
3: Right. So, so, the idea of this—that um, this, uh, these principles were central—and the, then the idea that they might have been um, dismissed as, as, you know, a bout of thefts in this period—it's obviously in many ways linked with women, who, uh, people on the margins. How then has that affected how this history has been regarded?
4: So, you know, we see the theft as, oh, they're, these are poor people. Oh, you know, the, the only thing they have is clothing and hence like the title of the book. It's, they only have the clothes on their back, right? So this is kind of sad that people are stealing property that really doesn't matter. Um, and yet, you know, the property was valuable, right? As this is a period where all of this property has not yet been completely devalued. So we, I think we find this hard to believe, right? In the age of fast fashion. I mean, I know, some of my students who have told me and confessed that they go buy clothes and then they don't wash them they throw them away because it's so cheap right and in this period it's it's still very expensive as you were pointing out like a coat could cost an entire year's wages and you know a fancy dress a really nice dress out of good fabric for a woman was the same way so this is valuable property and it's made all the more valuable because that legal connection makes it possible to trade right so the value is beyond the the Value um, in the market, and then you know it is the meaning and the beauty of it all, which also matters as well. And I don't think we've really seen the importance of that. That once people can trade to all these these clothes, they're, they're using, they're they're buying things with them. They're not just. You don't just buy clothing to use it up. You you buy it as an investment. You buy it because you can use it as currency. Um, so these people are actually central to the economy. And what we've seen is kind of, well, this is informal. This is an underground economy. Um, it's actually not underground or informal at all. There are rules that govern it. People insist that those rules be enforced in courts. The courts do it. Um, and so... Seeing these people as outside the economy or even engaged in the informal economy, I don't think quite captures the situation. In fact, the economy included all these people, it extended to them, and so did the legal system to a certain extent. And this wasn't because people were generous about this. I mean, those inequalities were still there. It's because people on the margins insisted on the recognition of these principles that were really useful to them. um, And they used them all the time, which in the use itself also kept them, as part of the public order, as part of the things that the law was going to enforce. So instead of like seeing this bifurcated world where you have the people on the inside who have rights and who could trade and who are part of the economy and who had access to law, and then there are all the people on the outside without rights who couldn't do any of those things. Instead, I'm seeing a much more kind of integrated world here um, and this, I think, then also changes how you see the trajectory of change over time, um, because these people were included. They had expectations about that. They also had real knowledge in how like basic uh, dynamics of exchange worked, um, and not only basic, but pretty um, sophisticated dynamics of exchange, like leveraging property, credit, interest over time, um, that kind of thing.
3: Your book does does chart the change um, in this period of how these powers shift and this declining legal power of textiles. What are the factors at play there?
4: So, yeah, unfortunately, like the legal powers of textiles are declining. And part of this is because the actual economic value of the goods declines. But part of it is because the legal principles also start declining and they start losing purchase in the court system. um, And and court officials cease to um, uphold them in the ways that they used to. And part of the issue here is the professionalization of law. Um, And also there's sort of the elaboration of a particular kind of law that comes with the professionalization of law that emphasizes rights, um, property rights as the only way to actually make claims to property, but then also a whole series of procedural rights as well. Um, So one of the key figures here is Sir William Blackstone who um, actually, my microphone is sitting on, a stack of Blackstone's commentaries here. Um, and Blackstone is writing in the 1760s in England, but Blackstone's commentaries become incredibly popular within the United States, perhaps even more popular and more influential than they were in England. Um, And so, Blackstone has a very rigid notion of coverture. So, he's taking what had been kind of a series of, principles that are associated with coveture, some of which are conflicting and that are modified by other kinds of principles that exist outside of coveture. He's taking them and putting them all together to make something that is a, you know, a coherent statement about married women's status in all circumstances. And this tends to be rigid in terms of um, denying women property rights and Also creating a situation where they're always working through their husbands, especially when it comes to claims to property, but also legal claims more generally. So right to prosecute cases and whatnot. Um, So this vision of coverture is elaborated out to think about other domestic relations, domestic relations, I'm putting that in quotes, because in the United States, domestic relations include master, servant, parent, child, but also master, slave. So it is this more rigid notion of the power of um, those people who are in authority, husbands, masters, fathers. And this is all part of this kind of reformulation of law, um, to a more rights-based law, but then it also accentuates the Inequality and the subordination of people without rights. And then on top of that, you get all of these procedural rights. And so people start following. It's like, okay, now we need to fill out the indictment properly. We need to know to determine whether this was first or second degree burglary. And you have to follow, you know, all of the kind of procedural rights in the process of the trial. This is quite different though than the way that the legal principles of textiles work. So it's less about, you know, following the procedural rights of the people who are involved and more about figuring out like where the textiles belong, who has an actual connection to them, those kinds of principles do not make it into the treatise literature, what is being taught in law schools, then what is making its way into statutes and appellate decisions. So, those customary practices don't make it in. And instead, you get sort of a rights-based procedural um, approach to trials and also a rights-based approach to property. And as that starts gaining more traction, the legal principles of textiles start falling away. And so, So over time, they become more like just consumer goods. They're not these sort of legally meaningful items anymore. Um, And that makes it really difficult for people to enforce the rules surrounding them and to use them in all the multiple ways, as currency, as capital that they had before. Because all of that really depended on the law, not just the economic value. Mm.
3: And we have covered an awful lot of what these textiles meant in economic terms in this period. But as I said earlier in the uh, chat, I do think such a um, a strong factor in your book is the real human element in so many of these um, these, uh, artefacts. And uh, can I ask, in your own connection to this, what brought you to write about the textiles in this way?
4: So I've always loved textiles. uh, My first fights as a child and insistence, my expression of will was what I wanted to wear. (laughs) I had definite ideas about that. Not all of them were in good taste. Um, And then when I was small, also, I really thought it was fascinating that you could turn fabric into something else. You could take a flat piece of fabric and turn it into a three-dimensional item. And that these things were like, they, I clearly had already like assimilated the idea that they were expressive of your individual personality. And so I would sit across from my mother as she was sewing my clothes and I would take the scraps and turn them into clothes. I'm putting that in definite um, quotation marks because I was three years old. They were clothes for my stuffed animals. And I had a favorite stuffed rabbit who I dressed in similar outfits. Of course, hers were less um, involved than the ones that I wore. It mainly was a scrap of fabric with two armholes cut in and I went from pasting or taping it in the back to then putting yarn ties and then over time I started making sort of more elaborate clothes and so I, for my stuffed animals and for dolls who I didn't really play with as dolls, I just dressed them. And now I also sew my own clothes so um, I still have this fascination with turning a flat piece of fabric into something more meaningful and the skill that goes into that, um, the labor, I can kind of, I think it gave me insight into why this is so meaningful for people in the past, right? To make something of value is really very satisfying. And that's essentially what they were doing. So women who sewed clothing, women who sewed either for themselves or for, you know, to sell in the market, um, women who made cloth. This is making something of value with your own hands. And now it doesn't have value in the market necessarily. I don't sell what I sew, but it still has value and you're making something of beauty. And I think both of those things really mattered to the people in the past. I am always stunned by the pride that that was expressed by a lot of the women who were doing this labor, right? So um, I think there is a tendency now sometimes to dismiss this as, oh, this is merely domestic labor, it's not valuable, but it required incredible skill. It made things that were really beautiful, and it also made things that really made a difference in people's lives. And for me, knowing that, and knowing that women in the past in particular um, were able to do this makes me think about their whole world differently.
0: That was Laura F. Edwards. Only the Clothes on Her Back, Clothing and the Hidden History of Power in the 19th Century United States is published by Oxford University Press and is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.